Good morning. It's great to be here with you at the Brooklyn Zen Center. Uh, I come from the other BZC, the Berkeley Zen Center, uh, where I live. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's great to be here because uh, at heart uh, and in fact, I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, and I was thinking as I was sitting, I said, boy, I wish there had been a place like this when I, when I last lived in Brooklyn in the late 70s. I lived really close. I lived on 2nd and 7th, 2nd uh, Street and 7th Avenue. And it's like, oh, if I could have walked down here. You know, what a difference that would have been in my life. Uh, it felt like my life then was uh, a kind of uh, inner battlefield. And uh, this is part of what we're doing is uh, the work of peace uh, starting with ourselves, starting with the circumstances, the internal circumstances that we find, which are completely related to the external, because really there is no internal and external. Uh, those are just uh, angles of perception. So uh, there's a lot of things to do today in this short time. I've been asked to give a talk about engaged Buddhism, and I've already started. Uh, and it's also Second Saturday, is that correct? Which, which means taking questions and responding to inquiries from people who are newer. And then we're going to celebrate the Buddha's birthday. Uh, and perhaps we should keep in mind that, uh, and I'll talk about her, that the Buddha had a mother, because tomorrow is Mother's Day. Uh, so how we're going to do all this within the next hour, hour and a quarter is it's interesting. I'm going to sing you a song, uh, but I'll sing it at the end of this first part of the talk because otherwise it would uh, it would kind of render irrelevant the rest of my talk. So, <laughs> and you'll have a chance to sing. Uh, maybe you know this. So I want to talk about engaged Buddhism, and also I want to talk about zazen and engaged Buddhism. We'll sort of be moving constantly from the between the so-called internal and so-called external. So I think one of the touchstones for what we call engaged Buddhism in, uh, in the West, and actually all over the world, has been uh, the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. And when when I started working at Buddhist Peace Fellowship in 1991, somebody gave me a, a broadside, a poster that I had over my desk. And that included a, an excerpt from Thich Nhat Hanh. And I want to read you what he said. And it's really, uh, it's particularly relevant now because as some of you may be aware, uh, there's a burgeoning mindfulness movement. Uh, and that brings forth uh, amusement. 
so uh, I'm not going to critique that or, or praise it, but I want to talk about what Thich Nhat Hanh's perspective was and what I think ours can be. So uh, this was in a book of his called Pieces Every Step, one of his early books. He said, when I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help people who are suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. To go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. But I want to say by way of comment that there was a ground of practice that he and his uh, brothers and sisters were cultivating and maintaining. Uh, they decided to do both, which included continuing their practice in the meditation hall, because that was uh, a grounding practice for them. I think about, uh, actually, when I, when I met Tia, uh, it was in Minnesota. Uh, and you were practicing with Katagiri Roshi. Uh, and I had come out to practice with him because I admired his, his practice very much. Uh, and shortly after that, people were putting together books of his teachings. And the first book uh, was, uh, and you should read these books, they're really good. But I'm going to just talk about the first two titles because they, they uh, completely point to what Thich Nhat Hanh was speaking of. First title was uh, Returning to Silence. So that's the ground of our practice. That's what we do here in this space. And even in this space, you notice it's not entirely silent. You hear the sounds of the kitchen. You hear the sounds of the traffic. Uh, you hear various sounds, but within ourselves, as we settle ourselves, we can touch this place of silence. So that's the practice that's cultivated in Zazen. The second book that uh, Katagiri Roshi, uh, that was published of his talks, uh, was called, You Have to Say Something. Uh, so, and that pertains to what the next paragraph in this, in this uh, piece by Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, which is the process of mindfulness, there must be acting. Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? 
we must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then, with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And he asks, are you planting seeds of joy and peace? Uh, he says, I try to do that with every step. Peace is every step. Shall we continue the journey? The practice of zazen is not just the practice of cross-legged sitting. That's one aspect of it. Traditionally, in Buddhism, there were four postures. Uh, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. And the spirit of zazen that pervades all of those is the effort to be upright, whatever your posture is which is to be able to meet each circumstance, so-called internal or so-called external, uh, and not turn away from it. To me, that's engaged Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism means that we see the circumstances that we are in, we see the circumstances that others are in, we understand that reality is something quite complex that we are co-creating with others on this planet. Uh, and that we're working back and forth between the cultivation and settling of ourselves and the Bodhisattva vow, which, uh, which you're probably familiar with, the vow to save all sentient beings. Uh, and so we turn towards those beings as Bodhisattvas. So next week, uh, I think on Wednesday, uh, a group of Buddhists are going down to Washington, D.C. I think Greg is going to be there. Uh, and on Thursday, uh, we are gathering first for a kind of exploration, and then we are meeting with the uh, White House staff. Uh, and. I don't know what's going to happen there. <laughs> uh, but uh, it seems an opportunity if the White House staff wants to engage with, with Buddhists, great. I think the main opportunity is for us to engage with, with each other. Uh, and I think that's part of the agenda is the people who have organized this have drawn uh, from many of the Buddhist communities uh, in, in America, uh, the Asian Americans, uh, small immigrant communities, the 
communities of color, communities of uh, import Buddhists like some of ourselves, some of ourselves, and you know, in many ways, the lines of communication among these communities is not so great, uh, and so it seems to many of us before we try to tackle the huge social questions that confront us, we actually need to be able to communicate among ourselves. And so that's what I'm looking forward to, just meeting people and talking with them. But I also see this as, if you will, an engaged Buddhist opportunity. And Again, I want to tease out the idea of engagement a little more. Uh, we live in a civilization or civilizations there where uh, that is very highly structured. We all operate within many systems, social systems, political systems, economic systems. And uh, one of the ways that those systems uh, quite amazingly work is they atomize us. They make us feel that we are individuals. Uh, and this is also very deeply embedded in uh, the notion of American uh, independence and individualism. Uh, we think we're operating individually, and yet we're functioning within systems that, are, uh, that have gender bias, that have racism, that uh, wage war, uh, systems that are uh, bringing about a, an environmental collapse. And the other effective uh, mechanism of individualism is that we feel individually without agency. How do we bridge that? How do we recognize that we are part of a system and that the system begins with the action and with the vow of an individual? Uh, and then on the basis of that vow to join together. Not necessarily, I mean, maybe joining together as Buddhists, but maybe joining together just as as humans. So we've been thinking we're going to, uh, after this event, on a voluntary basis, we're going to have a uh, photo opportunity with banners outside the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue for everybody who wants to participate. And the banners, we've, we've come up with. Uh, three slogans for these banners, and I think people are making them uh, in California this weekend. First is that the karma of slavery is heavy, 
I vow to work for racial justice. The whole earth is my true body. I vow to work for climate justice. And U.S. militarism breeds violence, not safety. I vow to work for peace and freedom. Now one could, there will be discussion probably about whether these are Buddhist uh, messages. And some people in our group will be very happy to just show up and will feel like, yes, we can make a statement as Buddhists. And other people, for reasons that we actually really need to hear and understand, may not feel comfortable with that. Uh, so we're going very carefully with this and making sure that people don't feel browbeaten into doing this, but also we want to take an opportunity to, to speak. So, um, I, I think I want to, there's, there's so much that I could say, uh, but I want to talk about, just very briefly, just say, uh, encourage us to be bodhisattvas. And that's what the song I'll sing is about. Uh, one of uh, the first Buddhist teachers who came from Japan, first Zen teachers who came from Japan to the West, uh, was a man named uh, Nyogen Senzaki. And uh, he had a, a floating zendo. And when he would come in and sit down, he would say, good morning, bodhisattvas. Because everybody, as he thought, was on the bodhisattva path. And some of us are already fully realized bodhisattvas, although we may not realize it, and others may not see us that way. But we are serving in our actions to awaken each other and in our practice. So uh, how can we be bodhisattvas? They're walking among us. And in any single breath, we can become a bodhisattva, we can become an enlightening being, or an enlightened being. And in the next breath, we may fall into our old habits of thoughtlessness, violence. We have that capacity within us too. So as we're sitting zazen, we realize you know, we realize that that choice is always within us. You know, we're sitting here, pretty settled, and then maybe 
or I'm sitting here looking very good uh, and uh, looks like good is an expression Suzuki Roshi used to use. And I'm thinking about lunch, you know. Uh, so this choice is within us. Our, uh, our hurtful actions, our deluded actions, themselves contain seeds that can flower as peace or harm. It depends on what we choose to do. Uh, but our vision can only sustain the world if we learn to look deeply. First looking deeply at ourselves, and then looking deeply at the world, which is also part of ourselves. Uh, one of the early sutras, Mahayana sutras, the uh, Vimalakirti Sutra, tells about the, an instance from the life of the great layman uh, Vimalakirti. And this whole book is about describing the bodhisattva way. And at the end of it, uh, there's a series of verses. I just want to read you three. This is the way he describes the work of the bodhisattva. He says, during the short eons of swords, they meditate on love, introducing to nonviolence hundreds of millions of living beings. In the middle of great battles, they remain impartial to both sides. For bodhisattvas of great strength delight in reconciliation of conflict. And this is my favorite. In order to help living beings, they voluntarily descend into the hells which are attached to all the inconceivable Buddha fields. In order to help living beings, they voluntarily descend into the hells which are attached to all the inconceivable Buddha fields. So however wonderful a Buddha field may appear, there's a shadow to it. And that's where the Bodhisattva is willing to go. So I'm going to sing you a song now that's, rel uh, that's relevant to that. And then we'll have a few minutes for questions and answers. Uh, this is a song you may have heard. Uh, it was written by uh, our friend uh, Greg Fain and Ben Gustin. Uh, it's called Our Hero. People familiar with this? Some are. Well, you're not. That's great. Whoopee. Uh, a new audience. Uh, so it's got a chorus. And I'll sing it once and then I'll, I'll badger you to sing it uh, the next time. Oh, I should say, this is actually a version of uh, chapter 20 of the Lotus Sutra. Uh, and it's really a great telling of that chapter, actually. I think it's, I was recently reading the Lotus Sutra, and I think this song is much more effective. You know?
There's a book called the Lotus Sutra that you really ought to know about. A holy book that has the power to remove all fear and doubt. And this book tells the story of a man who means the world to me. He could just as well have been a woman, except for male head Germany. So they call him the Bodhisattva never disparage and the Bodhisattva never despise. And I'm making it my life's ambition to see the world through his pure eyes. Because he says, and this is the chorus, I will never disparage you or keep you at arm's length. Where you only see your weaknesses, I only see your strength. I would never despise you or put you down in any way. Because it's clear to me, I can plainly see you'll be a Buddha someday. I love you. Now the Bodhisattva never disparaging lived countless kalpas in the past, in the time of the counterfeit dharma, and he was something of an outcast. Because the monks and nuns of his time, they were noted for their arrogance and vanity. And these were the folks who exercised great power and authority. But my boy, he never concerned himself if they treated him like a freak. He just bowed to everybody equally. And these are the words he'd speak. Here's the chorus. I would never disparage you or keep you at arm's length. You can sing louder than that. Where you only see your weaknesses, I only see your strength. I would never despise you or put you down in any way. Because it's clear to me I can plainly see you'll be a Buddha someday. I love you. He never read or recited the scriptures much. He only liked to practice respect. But the monks and nuns of his time they didn't meet it like you might expect. Instead, they cursed him and they reviled him and they wished that he would go because they all had self-esteem issues like everybody else to know. So they beat him and pelted him with clubs and stones and they tried to drive him away. He just run off to a safe distance and then he turn around and say, I would never disparage you or keep you at arm's length. Where you only see your weaknesses, I only see your strength. I would never despise you or put you down in any way. Because it's clear to me I can plainly see you'll be a Buddha someday. I love you. And so it went on for years and years. He was the target of scorn and abuse. Still our hero shed no tears, nor did he ever wonder what's the use. Until he came to the end of his natural lifespan, he lay down fixing to die. And he heard the Holy Lotus Sutra being preached up in the sky. And his life was extended for millions of years. He's living to this day. 
and in the pages of the Lotus Sutra, well, you still can hear him say, I would never disparage you or keep you at arm's length. Where you only see your weaknesses, I only see your strength. I would never despise you or put you down in any way. Because it's clear to me, I can plainly see you'll be a Buddha someday. Yes, it's clear to me, I can plainly see you'll be a Buddha someday. I love you. I love you. Thank you. So I'm aware of the time, but I'd like to leave time for a couple of questions. Is that okay? Two questions. And my hairpin just fell off, uh, which really is not a hardship given my hairdo, but okay. Uh, do you have any questions or thoughts? Yes. My name is Maya. I'm new here. I'm actually from Minnesota, and I'm Judith Regeer's student. Oh, great. Yeah. And so, Katakiri Roshi is in my lineage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were talking, um, I thought the slogans were beautiful, and um, you said there was another um, school of thought that, um, that um, people who don't agree with going to Washington and maybe having the slogans. I think th they probably wouldn't be. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to be aware of in this event is uh, a great breadth of social diversity. And, you know, uh, that kind of activity, that kind of statement may not be something that uh, that certain social groups are comfortable uh, doing in public. I don't know, but I've encountered that. And it's also, you know, conventionally, uh, Buddhism, uh, there, there's a tension between the social dimension of Buddhism and the, uh, kind of the the arc of personal practice. And so it I think that's a that's an issue of cultural sensitivity in many ways. And so that's what we want to be sensitive to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There was a hand over here. Yeah. Well, I think that um, I think that mistake that I made when I took up practice in, in when I was in college, 
1968 and got very excited uh, and determined, okay, well, we're going to continue this. And, but I didn't have an idea of how. And actually, the, the social and political environment was overwhelming. And I ended up setting it aside for a long time, for more than a decade. And I think that what I would recommend now is take some time every day to collect yourself and sit. Uh, and if you have a couple of friends who want to do that, uh, just do that. And it doesn't have to be long. You know, it can be 15 minutes. But claim that time for your own, because otherwise society will claim all of your time and energy. So if you can come here once a week or once every two weeks, you can ground yourself here and, and hopefully find a community of support, but also uh, find that space in your life and don't let that time, don't believe that you don't have time to do that. Uh, and there's a great, you know, the message is we don't have time, but we do. We always have time to spend 10 or 15 minutes uh, collecting ourselves in zazen or centering ourselves. So that's what I would say. And I think I need to end. I hear the staff is being Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.